Hi, welcome to episode two of the Edinburgh Space Data Capital podcast. I'm Kim McAllister. And I'm Murray Collins. I'm Chancellor's Fellow in Space and Satellite Analysis in the School of Geosciences and also Space Lead at the Bay Centre. You're all about space. All about space. But this one's a special one, this episode. Yeah, this is the one which is closest to my own heart. So we're talking about forest and forest mapping. Why is this your specialist subject? Uh, Specialist subject is really my, I'd say, lifelong passion. First thing I did when I finished school, actually, was save up my money and go to Latin America so I could go to the jungle. I spent four and a half months traveling around Central and South America, visiting as many tropical forests as I could. Then did my undergraduate, and after finishing my undergraduate, I went off to Sumatra and spent a good amount of time in the uh, mountain rainforest of Sumatra. I then did my uh, master's degree in Sulawesi and then went to uh, Sumatra again for my PhD. So tropical forests have been a bit of a lifelong passion, really. What is it about the tropical forests that you love so much? Uh, I would say, honestly, it's the the mystery, the fact that there's so many unknowns about tropical forests in terms of, really for me, it's like the animals and the plants that are still being found there today, the biodiversity, that's the thing that really got me. The aspects of like climate change, ecosystem services more generally, that's yeah, of very great importance for environmental management, but really what brought me to it was the biodiversity angle. Well, we're going to talk all about forest mapping in this episode because it's everything from tree hugging, as we mentioned last time. This is one of Murray's um, weekend hobbies, and right up to using the data from satellites to measure huge areas and help governments to plan against deforestation. The first person we're going to speak to today is Ibuka Nwabi, who is a fascinating character. He grew up in Nigeria, and of all the forests in the world, it's the mangroves that he's passionate about. My name is Ebuka Mwobi. I'm a postdoc at the University of Edinburgh where I'm working with the Global Change Ecology Lab and currently I'm working on a project where we're trying to estimate um, how much acres um, of land coffee is being uh, produced in Brazil and the reason why we're doing this is we're working with two other organizations in order to predict how much yield um, coffee would be in every production year. And where are you from originally? I'm from Nigeria. Um, I was born and brought up in Nigeria. My, my first degree was also in Nigeria. Okay, what was your first degree? So my first degree was in marine biology. Okay. Um, a lot of ecological assessment in my undergraduate. And why did you come to Edinburgh? Well, I came to Edinburgh first because of the culture, it was quite interesting. Um, Growing up um, loving Scottish cute, um, it's a big thing uh, when you just Google Scotland, but also because I was on a government scholarship and I kind of um, researched on the top universities in the world in terms of environmental sciences and Edinburgh was one of the top um, universities that was done, that's why I applied. So combined with uh, my love for Scotland as well, 
I might as well go go for it, and um, and that's what um, brought me here. And did your expectation of Scotland match the reality? Yes, it was even higher um, because it was a very diverse community, so I wasn't left out, and it was very nice interacting with um, other people because I was here for both my masters and then my PhD, so I had this sort of continuum of relationship with both the staff and some of the students I met in my master's course. Excellent. And in yeah. terms of what you were studying, was it exactly what you wanted to do or was it a whole new world suddenly opened to you? It was a whole new world, yes, it was. Because I applied to do the environmental and protection management course for a master's. But when I got there, I then realized it's not just about the environment. Um, it's not just about going to the field. There's a lot of other things that go into it. So, um, technology and then policy involvement which which not very new to me but I kind of felt the connectivity between technology science and um, policy so it was yes it was a whole new world for me. <laughs> Did you find it overwhelming at any point or was it all just really exciting? It, I think it's a bit of both. Um, it was a bit overwhelming because coming from Nigeria is a different educational system, so definitely I was a little bit overwhelmed with the the ways the teaching was done. But it was also very exciting um, because learning new things, um, getting to meet new people, and developing new skills, which was also very um, interesting. And do you feel like you've studied so far, you've got such a high level of, I mean, you're a postdoc now. Do you yeah. feel like the industry and the jobs are there for you? Yes, it is. Um, it's quite interesting because um, I came from an ecological background, but now I'm working in like agricultural sector. So it's quite interesting to see how um, the environment is connected with other sectors of an economy. So yes, um, it's it's really interesting. And you've travelled a lot during the course of your studies. Where have you been? Um, I've been to France, uh, I've been to well Nigeria, which is, I went back to Nigeria for some study, but I've also been to a couple of conferences. So I've been to Florida for a mangrove conference and I've been to um, Vienna for uh, like an in, um, environmental conference of the whole in the whole of Europe, um, and I've also been to Singapore. So it's quite interesting um, moving around and interacting with different people, um, talking about what I've I've done in the past years. That sounds wonderful. Yes, what a great way to learn to just keep going to all these different places. Yes. And I'm really interested that mangroves seem to be your specialism because that's not something that I'm aware of many people studying. How did you kind of fall into that? Yes. Um, it's been like an undertone from my undergraduate because I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, and the coast of Nigeria it has um, the largest mangrove in Africa and about the fifth in the world. Wow. So that's kind of where my um, interest in mangrove started. And when I came for my master's, I tried to do my dissertation on mangroves, but it's always tricky trying to study within three months, so there was not enough time to do the field work. So I kind of had the mangrove theme as my underlying tone, and I spoke to a couple of people, and I decided, okay, I'm going to do that for my PhD. Um, so it's it's been there right from undergraduate, so it's quite interesting that I'm kind of there. Yeah. Um, so that's would fun. the opportunity have been there had you not been at Edinburgh? Do you think there would have been, but it was interesting to be in Edinburgh while thinking of the ideas. Edinburgh introduced me to the connections that would have helped me to build up my case for studying mangroves better. Um, for example, I met um, a previous PhD student who was working on mangroves in Kenya. So she 
literally gave me the foundation of of my you know my research and trying to build up my proposal um so yes um, edinburgh really helped um it would have been a little bit slow if i wasn't here so yes edinburgh was really um, impactful in my mangrove studies that's brilliant so tell Mm -hmm. me about your studies right now in brazil what are you hoping to achieve with this so I'm basically trying to use the same methods I used to um, identify mangroves and invasive species in Nigeria to detect agricultural land. And this is not just specific to Brazil, but generally it is always interesting to know what amount of yield a certain agricultural sector can produce in any economy. So basically what I'm trying to do is to use the same remote sensing um um, technology and, and skill to estimate how much of the land surface is used um, to grow coffee and that kind of helps agronomists um, in a certain region to say oh well if we have this amount of land being um, used for coffee production then we may have this yield over time and that helps to maybe predict market value and production yield. Wow, so yes. it's information for governments and for international markets. Yes. Wow, and are you using satellite technology as part of this? Yes, um, I'm using um, the European Space Agency data that's from Sentinel um, 1 and 2. Um, so they are both optical data and um, radar data, um, but also you, you can't use remote sensing without going to the field. So we did have some data from the field as well. Would you suggest that other people come to study here if they're interested in the types of things that you are? Yes, I think um, if you want to start, if you really want to um, kind of start your um, remote sensing skills, um, it, Edinburgh is a, good, is a good place to start because you would, you would have a lot of advice from different people um, and you would have the opportunity to collaborate and learn more. Um, but yeah, Scotland is a, is a good way to start. Um, I'm, I'm, I, would I say lucky, but yeah, I'm happy that I, I started from here because it's, it's been an interesting journey. What have you enjoyed most about the culture in Scotland? Because you've lived here for a while now. Oh, well... I said the Keely, the dancing. Really? It's fun, yeah. 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 I think the the, the, dan- the dancing is nice. The dancing, the the, the, the whiskey, <laughs> <laughs> and the kilt. Yeah. Basically, the dancing, it's nice. Yeah. Do you go to Keely's a lot? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. At Excellent. least at least three times in a year. Really? At least. Yes. Oh, that's brilliant. Any any other occasion. So it must be fun to be a part of something that's emerging that's making such a difference on the ground it must be quite inspiring are you quite inspired by your work yes it's it's um one of the things i like about what i've learned in the past is that you work with a lot of people who have kind of similar ideas and you know you're you're developing a study and then you you know you search online and you see oh this person has you know this great idea and then you, you realize oh you're not alone that like you might be having thinking oh this is so difficult well, how am i going to do and then you realize there's this whole community of different people who have the same ideas um, and it's quite nice because then when you interact with them you realize that you're part of um, something new or something that's emerging Ibuka seems to have made himself very much at home in Scotland. I love how much he enjoys a Kaylee and a kilt. Have you worked with him? I have actually in, in terms of science communication. So I've worked over the past couple of years with Dynamic Earth to run a stall uh, during the Science Festival and Ibuka joined last year and he was absolutely brilliant. Um, he came along with uh, loads of information about mangrove forests and he was incredibly enthusiastic about the technology, the techniques he was using to map 
uh, to map those forests and explaining the science to the visitors. It's brilliant, actually. He did a fantastic job. Excellent. We bang on about Edinburgh a lot in this podcast, but actually this is a, a Scotland and UK wide effort to become the space leading nation, I would say. And being from Glasgow, I'm quite happy to move over there while we talk about the COP26. Would you like to explain, Murray, what it is? Yeah, I guess on, on, the, on the first point, we have this strategic objective of becoming the space data capital of Europe here in Edinburgh. But the big picture is really that there's an ecosystem right across Scotland and across the UK, and we're all increasingly seeking to work together to make a big offering to the world. And I think that's where we're really going to have an impact. So uh, there's great work being done at Strathclyde, University of Glasgow, uh, Dundee, Dundee uh, Satellite Station, for instance. There's all these core components. And then when you think about the new launch facilities which are being built, all the key components are here in, in Scotland and across the UK. And that's the bit I really want to emphasize. We've got a particular interest in the space data angle, but we sit within this much bigger ecosystem. We have a particular expertise, I would say, in, uh, in agile space. Uh, so like responding quickly to demands uh, in the world for, for data and for new applications and in small satellites. And I think that's where Scotland's really going to have a competitive advantage in the future. Yeah. So the, the sort of upstream side of space is where Glasgow tends to excel, isn't it? In the building of the actual hardware. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way it's, it can be crudely characterised. I you don't, just call I, it crude? Yes. Thanks. Um, I guess that's the way I, I think it's historically been, but increasingly you see people doing work on data in, uh, in Glasgow, Strathclyde. In Edinburgh, we have people developing upstream technologies as well. We have the Astronomy Technology Centre, for instance. We have companies being incubated at the Higgs Centre. So increasingly, that division is is breaking down. And so we have, we're two cities different, but we're trying to do the same thing ultimately, which is to exactly. develop a, a space economy. And as a Glaswegian living in Edinburgh, I am a living embodiment of how the two can just coexist. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> But I am genuinely excited about this climate change conference in Glasgow in November. Well, yeah, the world's eyes are going to be on Glasgow. The world's eyes will be on Scotland. And I think it's obviously it's absolutely fundamental that the Scottish government has declared a climate crisis. I think that as the world's attention is focused on Scotland, it's more important than ever that we emphasise the role of space in sustainable development. Mm -hmm. So the common international framework for addressing sustainable development is the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, which address things as various as life on land, life in the water. Satellite data is really useful for monitoring some of those. So life on land being one of those development goals and you can use satellite data to monitor natural processes and also our impact on natural processes and ecosystems and thereby understanding our progress towards achieving life on land sustainable development goal targets. And holding people accountable, holding governments accountable, holding companies accountable who might yes. be causing the deforestation. Exactly. So that's, that's where we can take this measure and, and map the changes in ecosystems, so measuring and mapping deforestation, and then understanding who's actually driving those processes and tracing supply chains is increasingly becoming an important part of that. So we are excited to A, host this and B, contribute what's going on in Edinburgh and Glasgow and other parts of Scotland 
to be part of the solution. Yes, exactly. It's a brilliant opportunity and uh, we'll have a very strong offering there, I'm sure. Well, we can't talk about forest mapping without talking to Aid Mitchard. No. He is probably one of the world's leading scientists in this area. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. Yes, yeah. he's an absolute superstar academic and uh, he commonly appears now on BBC, uh, CNN, other media channels to talk about how we use satellite data to map deforestation and forest de degradation. For instance, there was a great deal of news coverage over fires in the Amazon uh, recently and Ed popped up on, on every well, well, channel, so, it actually, felt like. I think on pretty much every channel. Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, he's a fantastic asset to Edinburgh you know, in terms of he, he just won the uh, Centre for Doctoral Training with Leeds, for instance, which is a, an absolutely central component to becoming the space data capital, minting a whole series of new PhDs in Earth observation science. But just in general, in terms of research and development uh, and expertise in Edinburgh, he's a really key figure. He's great. So we had to speak to him for the podcast. Here's it. Everything I do from the company Space Intelligence through to the University of Edinburgh is working on using free satellite data, which is now a, a ridiculous amount um, of free data collected um, every day uh, from about well, several hundred satellites around the Earth, which we can use to map changes in the land surface, so changes in, in tropical forests through to mapping agriculture in Scotland. I don't think that data is being very well used. There aren't that many companies that have the capacity to take big data and there aren't really that many scientists working on using the latest kind of machine learning type algorithms to, to analyze those data. Um, so my research group and Space Intelligence does bits and pieces of that. Um, but I think there's lots of potential to use, to use that data better to map the, uh, the world's forests and landscapes. And so this is really at the forefront of climate change debate really, isn't it? Is saving the rainforests and saving all the different types of forests across the world. Yes, indeed. So. Uh, Deforestation and forest degradation in the tropics is responsible for between about 15 and 20% of our emissions of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So it's a, a decent chunk. However, it's a chunk of, of emissions that would be very easy to stop in theory. There's no need to be cutting down rainforest. There's plenty of agricultural land in most tropical countries that could be used. And it's a very silly thing for us as a species to be doing, to be losing this biodiversity but also losing this forest that really helps um, stop and slow down climate change because the forest that is left is taking in a lot of the emissions that we are putting into the atmosphere. Effectively, trees grow better when there's more carbon dioxide, they do photosynthesis. So it's crazy to be cutting down these, these lungs of the planet, um, releasing their carbon and stopping their kind of buffering effect on the global climate. And there's been a lot of terrifying images in the news recently of the Amazon burning, of all the bushfires in Australia. I mean, it's all part of the same problem, isn't it? It is. I mean, our climate is already changing rapidly um, and also we are encroaching into these natural ecosystems. So Australia should burn, but probably not to the same extent that it does. Those forests have fire as part of their sequence, but you'd expect return time in decades to hundreds of years and we're having areas burn that burned only a few years ago and that, that kind of return time really changes the landscape and clearly makes it hard for, for people to live there and for wildlife to live. Um, the Amazon, lots of those forests shouldn't burn. They're naturally, um, they're systems that only if you disturb them, people start cutting down trees, they dry out. Are they able to burn? So that's really a very uh, clear sign of the damage we're causing to these. It's a kind of end of the line product, isn't it? The burning is actually a result of years of problems. It's not like in Australia where it's very dry and it happens. Exactly. So we can predict where um, 
the forests in Brazil are going to burn the year beforehand, really, by seeing where deforestation has taken place and where forest degradation has taken place. So forest degradation is where you take out some trees from an area of forest, but leave enough trees there that it's still classed as, as forest under a national definition. Deforestation is very easy to spot in satellite data. If you zoom in on Google Earth, you can easily see the areas that have non-forest, they're much brighter, kind of open areas. Mm -hmm. Degradation is something we work on a lot in the University of Edinburgh, how to map that better, because fundamentally forests still stay green, even if you've taken out maybe half their, up to half their biomass or so, they still look like a green carpet from, from a kind of normal satellite. So we use um, different types of satellites, particularly I use radar and LIDAR satellites which send pings of radiation at the Earth at different wavelengths and use the return to understand something about the forest structure. So we try and look at how that's changed and, and can map degradation. But yes, going back to fires, the only Amazon forests that burns are those that have been disturbed. So intact virgin Amazon forest won't burn under normal situations. And your research is particularly interesting for governments and for all these UN sustainable development goals that we're going to be discussing in, in Glasgow in, in November as well as around the world. How are they using the data that you're creating? So with my university work I do is kind of more cutting edge research. We're trying to build better maps that can be can be used in the future. Um, so. As part of um, the Paris Agreement, as part of that process, uh, they're trying to set up systems whereby the developed world can pay the developing world for protecting forests. Currently, we don't have systems that would allow that to be policed and monitored and payments to happen. So a lot of my research is about making better use of satellite data to produce systematic maps that could be used in that process. Okay, so it's, it's real world solutions. It's not kind of science for science sake. Yes, it definitely is. I feel that the policy has kind of run ahead of the science in some ways on this because the system uh, within the UNFCCC is called Red Plus, which stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation. And we can map the, the deforestation bit. But we really can't systematically map forest degradation. So I don't know how we can incentivize countries to reduce that if they don't know what their, their current baseline rate is or they can't prove that they've reduced against that. Mm -hmm. And similarly, the units for this is all in tons of carbon uh, within forests. And again, we, we still don't have good systems for mapping that. Um, but there are developments. There's been some new satellites up recently uh, that we've been involved with. For example, the European Space Agency is, launch, is launching a satellite called Biomass oh. in 2021, which is designed to map biomass uh, forest carbon I see what stocks. they did there, yeah. <laughs> and that's very exciting. That's the first time we'll be able to properly map uh, biomass at a large scale from space. And there's also some, some LIDARs, which are laser sensors um, that have recently gone up. So one called uh, JEDI, which is a NASA uh, instrument that, again, we're using. Uh, we're currently testing that in some, some forest plots in Peru and Gabon. And the European Union-funded project that I lead, um, which is trying to use these types of data within forest plots that are in logging concessions, where some biomass will change from one year to the next as trees are cut down. So we're trying to use that as validation data for satellite products that we hope we can scale up across the tropics and make maps of, of carbon stock change. That's amazing. Is anyone else doing this or is it you and your team sort of leading this? We're definitely not the only people working on um, forest change science, but um, uh, certainly we're one of the leaders in the, the UK in this. And yeah, we have, um, so I have eight people working for me, four PhD students and four postdocs working on carbon stock change mapping uh, within tropical peatlands and tropical forests. That's so inspiring because I'm thinking about, you know, everybody reads these these details about the way the world's changing and you feel so helpless. You don't know what you can do beyond recycling and all the basic sort of domestic things. But to know that you could study and work in an area that's 
really part of the solution is so inspiring, isn't it? Do you think people are aware that they can do that? We're very keen to train the next generation of scientists in this in Edinburgh. We have a few different um, programs as part of the vision to come to become the space data capital of Europe. Uh, we want to train undergraduates and MSc students um, in using data science and satellite data together to solve not just deforestation, but other environmental problems without data sets, without being able to measure these things. There's no way you can create solutions. Uh, we've also recently won funding from the Natural Environment Research Council to train 50 new PhD students. 50? Wow, yes, that's over a the lot. Next, so over three co cohorts over the next three years, um, a centre called SENSE, which is the Centre for Satellite Data in Environmental Science. It's joint with the, the so it's University of Edinburgh, University of Leeds, the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton, and the British Antarctic Survey, uh, based in Cambridge and Antarctica. So together we're going to train these 50 students in advanced kind of machine learning and artificial intelligence, uh, and then also in satellite data, and each one of those will be working towards a specific problem. Um, so I think those 50 students will produce 50 solutions and new satellite data products, but also that's training a generation of people that we hope will go into industry and academia in the UK and help train more more people in this very important area. That's amazing and so kind of reassuring for someone like me who just worries and doesn't <laughs> feel like they can actually do very much. So um, Edinburgh, along with other partners, is clearly doing a lot of cutting-edge technology. You must be really inspired by what you do. Yeah, so it's a very exciting, with the technology kind of side of things, it's a very exciting time to work on, on satellite data because back in the mid-2000s, very little satellite data was free. There was quite a lot being collected, but uh, I remember as a PhD student in 2007, uh, Landsat, which is a standard NASA satellite collecting uh, basically photographs of the Earth at a reasonably high resolution, had to pay about $700 for each scene of those. So I could purchase a bit within my, my grant, but I couldn't really do very much with it. In 2009, the Obama administration made that free, and suddenly there are now papers published or I can easily access on my computer and do analyses on hundreds of thousands or millions of Landsat scenes going back to the 1970s at zero cost. So that's, that's, that's just, just analyses you couldn't imagine doing just 10, 15 years ago. Totally, just changes everything, doesn't it, if you just take out that cost? It does, and the default now for the, for the big space agency satellites, the so European Space Agency, NASA, uh, European Space Agency, ESA and NASA, the American equivalent, is to produce data that's free and open because they think that um, companies and scientists should be able to take economic advantage and advantage for society out of these rather than trying to make that little bits of money to, through direct payments. It's really transformed this sector. And at the same time as computing power has become much cheaper, we have these, these advanced artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms developed by the, the big tech companies. Um, it's really a sweet spot where I think we, we have all this data, we, we know how to use it, and we just have to start applying it to, to environmental issues. And there's an opportunity to study with Ed through this new Centre for Doctoral Training, which is fantastic. It's co-hosted co with the University of Leeds. For people who are not yet at a level of studying for a PhD, there's also a range of master's programmes and undergraduate degrees. Uh, which all focus on um, the natural systems, so uh, environmental sciences courses, uh, but al also increasingly data science courses. And as we've discussed, and hopefully as will become clear through these podcasts, data science can be applied to environmental contexts to create applications, to create real-world real impact. And so th those op opportunities are really increasing now in Edinburgh. I think it's very cool for people who are interested in helping to be part of the solution for the climate change crisis, that these are 
very cool degrees and further study options that will teach you all sorts of skills that you can use. Yeah, they're increasingly highly technical. So data scientists are in great demand right across a number of sectors. And so uh, when you're picking up programming skills, I think you're setting up yourself with a skill for life, actually. If you learn one language, it becomes a lot easier to learn the next language. And whatever you end up doing, and even if some people come out of environmental uh, science courses, then they may end up doing something else ultimately, but using the skills they picked up around programming and data analytics. You had to learn programming, didn't you? I did have to learn programming. I, I actually started to use uh, R language in my uh, PhD. Uh, and then when I came up to Edinburgh, I had to crash learn Python. Crash to, learn Python. To write an algorithm for analyzing stacks of uh, SAR imagery to detect deforestation and forest degradation. So that, that was an interesting process. But I, I found it very, very rewarding, actually. And it's a key skill, which yeah. I continue to use to this day. Well, we've covered forest mapping in this episode. We're going to move on to agricultural mapping in the next one. If you want to find out any more about what we've discussed today, check out the Edinburgh University website. You can also look up the Bayes Centre, B-A-Y-E-S. And you can ask Murray or I anything you like on Twitter at Murray B. Collins or at Kim McAllister. Thanks for listening.